Part Five of the Story of Mary MacLean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Story of Mary MacLean by Mary MacLean. Part Five. January Twenty Eighth. I am an artist of the most artistic, the highest type. I have uncovered for myself the art that lies in obscure shadows. I have discovered the art of the day of small things. And that surely is art with a capital A. I have acquired the art of good eating. Usually it is in the grey and elderly forties and fifties that people cultivate this art, if they ever do. It is indeed a rare art. But I know it in all its rare exquisiteness, at the young, slim age of nineteen which is one more mark of my genius, do you see? The art of good eating has two essential points. One must eat only when one is hungry, and one must take small bites. There are persons who eat for the sake of eating. They are gourmands, and partake of the natures of the pig and the buzzard. There are persons who take bites that are not small. These also are gourmands, and partake of the natures of the pig and the buzzard. There are persons who can enjoy nothing in the way of eating except a luxurious, well-appointed meal. These, it is safe to say, have not acquired the art of anything. But I, I have acquired the art of eating an olive. Now listen, and I will tell you the art of eating an olive. I take the olive in my fingers, and I contemplate its green oval richness. It makes me think at once of the land where the green citron grows— where the cypress and myrtle are emblems, of the land of the sun where human beings are delightfully and chantingly wicked, where the men are eager and passionate, and the women gracefully developed in mind and in body, and their two breasts show round and full and delicately veined beneath thin drapery. The mere sight of the olive conjures up this charming picture in my mind. I set my teeth and my tongue upon the olive and bite it. It is bitter, salt, delicious. The saliva rushes to meet it, and my tongue is a happy tongue. As the morsel of olive rests in my mouth, and is crunched and squeezed lusciously among my teeth, a quick, temporary change takes place in my character. I think of some adorable lines of the Persian poet, Give thyself up to joy, for thy grief will be infinite. The stars shall again meet together at the same point in the firmament, but of thy body shall bricks be made for a palace wall. O oh, dear, sweet, bitter olive, I say to myself. The bit of olive slips down my red gullet and so into my stomach. There it meets with a joyous welcome. Gastric juices leap out of the walls and swathe it in loving embrace. My stomach is fond of something bitter and salt. It lavishes flattery and endearment galore upon the olive. It laughs in silent delight. It feels that the day it has long waited for has come. The philosophy of my stomach is wholly epicurean. Let it receive but a tiny bit of olive, and it will reck not of the morrow nor of the past. It lives voluptuously in the present. It is content. It is in paradise.
I bite the olive again. Again the bitter salt crisp ravishes my tongue. If this be vanity, vanity let it be. The golden moments flit by, and I heed them not. For am I not comfortably seated and eating an olive? Go hang yourself, you who have never been comfortably seated and eating an olive. My character evolves farther in its change. I am now bent on reckless sensuality. Let happen what will. The fair earth seems to resolve itself into a thing oval and crisp and good and green and deliciously salt. I experience a feeling of fervent gladness, that I am a female thing living, and that I have a tongue and some teeth and salivary glands. Also this bit slips down my red gullet, and again the festive stomach lifts up a silent voice in psalms and rejoicing. It is now an absolute monarchy, with the green olive at its head. The kisses of the gastric juice become hot and sensual and convulsive and ecstatic. Avaunt, pale shadowy ghosts of dyspepsia, says my stomach. I know you not. I am of a brilliant, shining world. I dwell in Elysian fields. Once more I bite the olive. Once more is my tongue electrified. And the third stage in my temporary transformation takes place. I am now a gross but supremely contented sensualist. An exquisite symphony of sensualism and pleasure seems to play somewhere within me. My heart purrs. My brain folds its arms and lounges. I put my feet up on the seat of another chair. The entire world is now surely one delicious green olive. My mind is capable of conceiving but one idea, that of a green olive. Therefore, the green olive is a perfect thing, absolutely a perfect thing. Disgust and disapproval are excited only by imperfections. When a thing is perfect, no matter how hard one may look at it, one can see only itself, itself and nothing beyond. And so I have made my olive and my art perfect. Well then, this third bit of olive slides down the willing gullet into my stomach, and then my heart with pleasure fills. The play of the gastric secretions is now marvellous. It is the meeting of the waters. It were well, ah, how well, if the hearts of the world could mingle in peace, as the gastric juices mingle at the coming of green olive into my stomach. Paradise! Paradise! says my stomach. Every drop of blood in my passionate veins is resting. Through my stomach, my stomach, do you hear? My soul seems to feel the infinite. The minutes are flying. Shortly it will be over. But just now I am safe. I am entirely satisfied. I want nothing. Nothing. My inner quiet is infinite. I am conscious that it is but momentary. And it matters not. On the contrary, the knowledge of this fact renders the present quiet, the repose more limitless, more intense. Where now, devil, is your damnation? If this be damnation, damnation let it be, 
If this be the human fall, then how good it is to be fallen! At this moment I would fain my fall were like yours, Lucifer, never to hope again. And so bite by bite the olive enters into my body and soul. Each bite brings with it a recurring wave of sensation and charm. No, we will not dispute with the brilliant mind that declared life a tragedy to those who feel. We will let that stand. However, there are parts of the tragedy that are not tragic. There are parts that admit of a turning aside. As the years pass, one after another, I shall continue to eat. And as I eat, I shall have my quiet, my brief period of aberration. This is the art of eating. I have acquired it by means of self-examination, analyzing, analyzing, analyzing. Truly, my genius is analytical, and it enables me to endure, if also to feel bitterly, the heavy, heavy weight of life. What a worm of misery I should be were it not for these bursts of philosophy, these turnings aside. If it please the devil, one day I may have happiness. That will be all sufficient. I shall then analyze no more. I shall be a different being. But meanwhile, I shall eat. When the last of the olive vanishes into the stomach, when it is there reduced to animated chyme, when I play with the olive seed in my fingers, when I lean back in my chair and straighten out my spinal column, oh, then do you not envy me, you fine, brave world who are not a philosopher, who have not discovered the art of the small things, who have not conscious chyme in your stomach, who have not acquired the art of good eating. January 29th As I read over now and then what I have written of my portrayal, I have alternate periods of hope and despair. At times I think I am succeeding admirably. And again, what I have written compared to what I have felt seems vapid and tame. Who has not felt the futility of words when one would express feelings? I take this hope and despair as another mark of genius. Genius, apart from natural sensitiveness, is prone equally to unreasoning joy and to bitterest morbidness. I am more than fond of writing, though I have hours when I cannot write any more than I could paint a picture or play Wagner as it should be played. I think my style of writing has a wonderful intensity in it, and it is admirably suited to the creature it portrays. What sort of portrayal of myself would I produce if I wrote with the long, elaborate periods of Henry James, or with the pleasant, ladylike phrasing of Howells? It would be rather like a little tin phonograph, trolling out flowery poetry at breakneck speed, or like a deep-toned church organ pouring forth goo-goo eyes with ponderous feeling. When I read a book I study it carefully to find whether the author knows things, and whether I could, with the same subject, write a better one myself. The latter question I usually decide in the affirmative. The highest thing one can do in literature is to succeed in saying that thing which one meant to say. There is nothing better than that, to make the world see your thoughts as you see them. 
Eugene Field and Edgar Allan Poe and Robert Louis Stevenson and Charles Dickens, among others, have succeeded in doing this. They impress the world with a sense of their courage and realness. There are people who have written books which did not impress the world in this way, but which nevertheless came out of the feeling and fullness of zealous hearts. Always I think of that pathetic, artless, little old-fashioned thing, Jane Eyre, as a picture shown to a world seeing with distorted vision. Charlotte Bronte meant one thing when she wrote the book, and the world, after a time, suddenly understood a quite different thing, and heaped praise and applause upon her, therefore. When I read the book I was not quite able to see just what the message was that the Bronte intended to send out. But I saw that there was a message, of bravery, perhaps, or of that good which may come out of Nazareth. But the world that praised and applauded and gave her money seems totally to have missed it. It takes centuries of tears and piety and mourning to move this world a tiny bit. But still, it will give you praise and applause and money if you will prostitute your sensibilities and emotions for the gratification of it. I have no message to hide in a book and send out. I am writing a portrayal. But a portrayal is also a thing that may be misunderstood. January 30th An idle brain is the devil's workshop, they say. It is an absurdly incongruous statement. If the devil is at work in a brain, it certainly is not idle. And when one considers how brilliant a personage the devil is, and what very fine work he turns out, it becomes an open question whether he would have the slightest use for most of the idle brains that cumber the earth. But after all, the devil is so clever that he could produce unexcelled workmanship with even the poorest tools. My brain is one kind of devil's workshop, and it is as incessantly hard-worked and always busy a one as you could imagine. It is a devil's workshop indeed, only I do the work myself. But there is a mental telegraphy between the devil and me, which accounts for the fact that many of my ideas are so wonderfully groomed and perfumed and colored. I take no credit to myself for this, though, as I say, I do the work myself. I try always to give the devil his due, and particularly in this portrayal. There are very few who give the devil his due in this world of hypocrites. I never think of the devil as that atrocious creature in red tights, with cloven hooves and a tail and a two-tined fork. I think of him rather as an extremely fascinating, strong, steel-willed person in conventional clothes, a man with whom to fall completely, madly in love. I rather think, I believe, that he is incarnate at times. Why not? Periodically I fall completely, madly in love with the devil. He is so fascinating, so strong. So strong, exactly the sort of man whom my wooden heart awaits. I would like to throw myself at his head. I would make him a dear little wife. He would love me. He would love me. I would be in raptures. And I would love him, oh, madly, madly. What would you have me do, little Maclean? the devil would say. I would have you conquer me, crush me, know me, I would answer. And what shall I say to you? the devil would ask. 
Say to me, I love you, I love you, I love you, in your strong, steel, fascinating voice. Say it to me often, always, a million times. What would you have me do, little Maclean? he would say. I would answer, hurt me, burn me, consume me with hot love, shake me violently, embrace me hard, hard in your strong, steel arms. Kiss me with wonderful burning kisses, press your lips to mine with passion, and your soul and mine would meet then in an anguish of joy for me. How shall I treat you, little Maclean? Treat me cruelly, brutally. How long shall I stay with you? Through the life everlasting, it will be as one day, or for one day, it will be as the life everlasting. And what kind of children will you bear me, little Maclean? he would say. I will bear wonderful, beautiful children with great pain. But you hate pain, the devil will say. And when you are in your pain, you will hate me. But no, I will answer, pain that comes of you whom I love will be ineffable exaltation. And how will you treat me, little Maclean? I will cast myself at your feet, or I will minister to you with divine tenderness, or I will charm you with fantastic deviltry. When you weep, I will melt into tears. When you rejoice, I will go wild with delight. When you go deaf, I will stop my ears. When you go blind, I will put out my eyes. When you go lame, I will cut off my legs. Oh, I will be divinely dear, unutterably sweet. Indeed, you are rarely sweet, the devil will say, and I will be in transports. Oh, devil, 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 oh, misery, misery of nothingness, the days are long, long and very weary as I await the devil's coming. End of Part 5